You're listening to the Historical Bookworm Show. For lovers of history and readers of inspirational fiction, join your hosts, Kylie and Darcy, for author interviews, a pinch of the past, and special bookworm reviews. Hi, this is Kylie Woodley. And Darcy Fournier. Sarah Sandin enjoys writing about the drama and romance of the World War II era. She's the best-selling and Christie Award-winning author of Until the Leaves Fall in Paris, When Twilight Breaks, and several World War II series. A mother of three, Sundin lives in Southern California and teaches Sunday school and women's Bible studies. She enjoys speaking to community, church, and writers groups. She also serves as co-director of the West Coast Christian Writers Conference. When she's not writing, she and her husband enjoy traveling and taking their two rescue dogs for lengthy walks. Sarah, welcome to the Historical Bookworm Show. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited to get to talking about your latest book. But before we get into it, let's start with something fun. Tell us about how you came to adopt your two rescue dogs. (laughs) Well, that was my husband's doing. (laughs) He's a dog person. (laughs) I'm the cat person, but um, that's been put on hold. That's another story. Our previous dog died in March 2020 and needed a new dog. And my husband started Googling dogs online. (laughs) And we were still living in Northern California at the time. And he found this dog. He was super cute and looked like he was in Oakland, which wasn't too far from us, about an hour. Did some calls. Turned out the dog was actually in Nevada, up by Reno, which was about a four-hour drive for us. So we drove. It was a beautiful, beautiful mountain drive, but got there. And my husband and our, our youngest son was home with us at the time. he just gotten out of the Navy. And they both just fell in love with this dog. And I was talking with the the owner though the um the breed is a jindo it's a korean breed and i mentioned something about my cat had passed away in june it was not a good year 2020 you know it has a bad reputation for a reason but for us we we lost all our pets that year <laughs> it was like it was just everything piling up so i was talking to the 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 foster mother and i mentioned getting a new cat and she started shaking her head so hard i thought her head was going to fall off and she says, oh, no, you can never have a cat with a jindo because they have a very high prey instinct and they'll just kill it. And <laughs> so anyway, so we don't have a cat. Jindos are, he was also, he needs an, another pet. He needs another animal. So we end up rescuing another dog and she is a black lab mix. And they couldn't possibly be more different than they are. Um, one is very cautious. One is very rambunctious. One is, oh, they're just darling. But they love each other and they love their walks. And we're so thankful our, our new neighborhood in Southern California is built around this um, open space area with all these trails. And it's just the most wonderful place to walk. And our dogs think they are in heaven. <laughs> so. Oh, that is so fun. I love that they're like pulls apart, but they're best friends. Oh, yeah. They're good for each other, too. They really are. That's neat. Dogs are such a special part of our lives and families. I'm sure I'm glad that God just made them the way they are. We just got a puppy all right before Christmas. And it's just been such a delight having her around the house and interacting with the kids. Oh, fun. So you've been writing about the World War II era for quite a few novels now. What keeps you coming back to this time period? 
well, it's just so fascinating. And there's so many amazing stories that come out of the World War II era. So The Sound of Light is my 15th World War II novel. And I know, and I'm, I'm actually contracted for another three. So um, the ideas still keep coming, but there's just so much drama. And because it truly was a world war, every continent except Antarctica was involved to some extent. And so there are so many stories and I'll never be able to tell them all. And that's okay because there are, World War II is rather trendy in fiction right now. So there are a lot of authors writing it. It's just such a time of an inherent drama. And of course, what does a novelist need most? Drama. So lots to work with. One thing that just always amazes me whenever I read a World War II story is the bravery and sacrifice that's exemplified through the characters. And we're talking about fiction, but as often as fiction mirrors real life, it just shines through with fiction set in the World War II era. Exactly. And I think that's what makes it timeless is that we always think we're in tough times. And looking back to the past, especially times that were tougher than ours, and seeing how they got through it with courage and dignity, I think that helps us in our own time too. I agree. And you've practically answered the next question, but you may have more to add to it. So as readers of historical fiction, we obviously find it worthwhile to explore the past. Why do you feel personally that a knowledge of history is important? Oh, yeah. Obviously, the, the famous quote about those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. <laughs> There's so much to be said for that because you see these things repeating, repeating, repeating. And that's because humans are sinful creatures and we will fall into the same patterns. It manifests in a slightly different way, but we gravitate toward chaos, toward the polar opposite, which is, you know, harsh dictatorship. Well, to avoid chaos, we'll just clamp down on everything. So we tend to swing between these polar extremes over and over throughout history. So seeing those and how people got through it, I think it helps you to see the dangers in our current society and possibly how to avoid it and seeing why those things are dangerous. You know, why um, extreme government control is as evil as an extreme lack of government control. And, 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 we, and I don't want to make this political, but we are driven right now to extremes. And the 1930s especially was a time of really polar extremes. And that led directly to World War II, is that these extremes were fighting each other. I think looking back to the past is so important because human beings don't change. Our clothing changes, our modes of transportation change, um, the language we use changes, but who we are at our hearts don't change. And therefore our sinful nature doesn't change understanding that helps see the humanity of people in the past and also hopefully teaches us how to act better in our present to understand where we've come from and why we are who we are today. Absolutely. And I could see why you feeling so passionately about this and sharing this truth that you would continue to write these World War II stories. Is there anything especially interesting that you haven't covered in other interviews that you could share with us? Or perhaps there's something God has laid on your heart that you would like to share with your readers? Oh, <laughs> this is the question that always gets me because after 15 books, it's like, there are no questions that haven't been asked. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, sorry, I really don't have anything for that one. No. <laughs> 
I honestly don't. Fair enough. <laughs> I've been asked if I were an animal, what animal would I be? And the, the, the full gamut, every question. Don't think there. I've had a unique question for a long oh, time. Oh, you've given us a challenge. Next time you come, I'm going to try to have a question you've never had. But the... What question hasn't been asked? I don't know. I can't think of a question that hasn't been asked. That's cool, though, because it's a testament to, you know, how many how many books you've had and how much you've gotten to share them. That's really cool. It is. It is um, a delight. Obviously, I love chatting about books and I enjoy chatting about history. And it's really an honor to do these podcasts and these interviews. And it's just fun. Well, let's dive into talking about The Sound of Light. To help their country, he must silence his voice, and she must find hers. When the Germans march into Denmark, Baron Hemrik Ehlefeldt exchanges his nobility for anonymity, assuming a new identity so he can secretly row messages for the Danish resistance across the waters to Sweden. American physicist Dr. Elsa Jensen refuses to leave Copenhagen and abandon her research, her life's dream, and makes a dangerous decision to print resistance newspapers. As Elsa hears rumors of the movement's legendary Halman, the Merman, she also becomes intrigued by the mysterious and silent shipyard worker living in the same boarding house. Hemrick makes every effort to conceal his noble upbringing, but he is torn between the facade he must maintain and the woman he is beginning to fall in love with. When the occupation cracks down on the Danes, these two passionate people will discover if there is more power in speech or in silence. My goodness, this sounds so intriguing. A nobleman trying to pass himself off as a working man and an American printing resistance papers in occupied Denmark. Plenty of ways things could go wrong for these characters. Denmark actually had a rather unique story among the Nazi occupied countries. And that doesn't always get a lot of attention. Uh, what cool facts did your research uncover about the Danish resistance? Oh, I just found it so fascinating. You know, every nation that was occupied by the Germans did develop a resistance organization. Or I shouldn't say organization. It was often multiple organization, you know, multiple resistance groups, often at loggerheads with each other because they were ideologically opposite of each other. But... They all developed resistance. It developed slower in Denmark because the Germans were very nice to the Danes. They let them keep their king and their government in place. Their parliament was still meeting. They were allowed to have most of their civil liberties. They did not crack down on the Danish Jews for three and a half years, actually. Basically, they had a really good standard of living. So resistance was kind of confined to young radical boys, you know, <laughs> where it often starts anyway. But over time, it started to develop. And what was really interesting and cool about the Danish resistance was how it really began to be a grassroots thing. It was normal people from very normal situations who began to get involved, especially when they... Germans began to crack down on the Danish Jews, and the nation rose up almost as one to rescue their Jewish population. An outstanding story. One of the best stories that ever came out of World War II, I think. Very inspiring. Almost all of the Danish Jews were saved. There were over 7,000 Danish Jews before the crackdown, and they were able to take almost all of them to Sweden across the waters. Amazing story. They really stood up for them as their fellow citizens. And so the 
Germans were only able to arrest a few hundred. That just kind of um, galvanized the public, and they really stepped up behind the resistance after that. The different resistance groups were unified. They came together under the head of um, the Danish Freedom Council, which was set up by all these different groups working together. Um, So some very interesting stories, and I was able to explore some of those in The Sound of Light, which was fun. That is cool. It sounds like the fact that they were able to unify and so many people willing to, if not directly engage, at least turn a blind eye to resistance movements, that it ended up that they were able to save so many more of their population that was targeted. Well, The Sound of Light is based upon real life events. So can you share with us some insight on which of the events featured in your book actually took place? No spoilers, of course, but you know. (laughs) Well, obviously, I'm speaking with such passion about the rescue of the Danish Jews, and it does play a part in the story. Um, Henrik Ehlefeldt is inspired by a real man whose name was Newt Christensen. He was an Olympic rower, and he carried Jews across. There was a 10-mile strait of water between Denmark and Sweden, and he rode across in his his racing skull and took them one at a time. I think he went across 20 to 30 times. And I thought, now, wow, that's a story. And so that's why I made, um, Henrik is not Newt Christensen. He's definitely his own person. But I made Henrik an Olympic rower, and he uses his racing skull to ferry messages across for the resistance. It was kind of fun to pay a little homage to um, a real man who did some really heroic things. That's amazing. And so cool that he had this skill that he had engaged in more or less for fun. But when it came down to it, he's like, I've got a skill, I can use it. And he was willing to do it. That's, that's pretty amazing. I think so too. And it's such a unique skill to use too. (laughs) Absolutely. It's like, who would have thought that he'd be saving lives by being a rower one day, but he did. I know, I know. You don't think about that. (laughs) What is the most important takeaway you'd like readers to gather from this story? I think it has to do with when to speak out and when to keep silent. And um, also avoids confrontation. She's one of these people who would prefer to keep her silence and not speak up. Um, Henrik, by nature, he was more than happy to speak up and, you know, he'll take the consequences. And in his role as the Hellman, as a shipyard worker, he has to be silent to keep his secret identity. And that's hard for him, but it really challenges him as a man. And when Elsa is struggling about whether to speak up to um, her boss, who's you know really being annoying to her, really abusing her, I should say, he tells her that sometimes silence takes much courage. And she thinks, well, yes, of course, I'm being very courageous by holding my tongue. <laughs> and then he also, but then Henrik immediately says, but sometimes silence is nothing but cowardice. And that's what Elsa has to decide. Is her silence a sign of, of courage or is it being cowardly and not speaking up when she really should? And so really developing that discernment of knowing when we should speak up and when we should keep silent. And honestly, in modern times, I think learning to keep silent is a skill that more of us need to learn, (laughs) especially on social media. Yeah. (laughs) Let's be honest here. It's actually a lot harder to speak up in person. Like social media, is, it's easy to just say whatever you're thinking when you're sitting on your couch in your living room by yourself. 
But when you're in like a room full of people, it's actually harder then to speak up. I know. And we see such um, you know, verbal atrocities on social media. People would never say these things in, in person, but they're free to say them on online. For them, speaking up, they think it's being speaking up is courageous, but sometimes speaking up is just rude and <laughs> trying to make that decision of what it is. Good point. Well, Sarah, what is up next after this release? Can you share what you have planned? I can. Uh, my next story takes place during the London Blitz. Um, I've written a few stories set in, you know, partly set in London, but this is the first one set during the Blitz. So I'm very excited about this. And my heroine, Aleda Martins, is a Dutch refugee. And when she's fleeing the Netherlands, she gets separated from her three-year-old son. And all she knows is that he's headed, the family who took him is taking him to London. So she goes to London and she's trying to find him. I'm talking about needle in a haystack. And um, she enlists the help of Hugh Collingwood, who is a BBC radio correspondent. And um, so he's also, as he's helping Aleda, he's also reporting on the Blitz and then some murders start popping up among the, the flames of the city and they try to figure out what's going on. So it's been a fun story to write. Well, it sounds like fun. It'll be good to to read it when it's out. So for our listeners, Sarah is offering a copy of The Sound of Light. To enter, just check out our website, historicalbookworm.com. And we'll have that link there on the giveaways page. You can also find the link in the show notes for this episode. And Sarah, where can our listeners connect with you? My website is sarahsunden.com. And I'm also on Facebook at Sarah Sunden Author, at Instagram at Sarah Sunden Author, Twitter at Sarah Sunden. So I'm, I'm pretty much everywhere, <laughs> so, but not TikTok. I, I, I refuse to dance to sell books. I'm just, I'm just holding back on that one. I'll have to have some dignity left. You know? <laughs> Boundaries, people. Yes, batteries. I'm 57 year old, years old. I should not have to dance to sell books. I refuse. <laughs> now for a pinch of the past. On today's pinch of the past, we are going to be looking at heroic dogs during World War II. Now, Darcy's been unable to join me for this, so it's just you and me, listener. So animals have played an important part of society for thousands of years, particularly in war. Human armies often enlist animals, including beasts of burden like elephants, horses, and camels, while pigeons carry messages and dogs track enemies and protect troops. Today, we're looking at some of those historic dogs. So a quick look at those dogs during World War I, just because I didn't feel like it would be right to not acknowledge them. <laughs> According to the National World War I Museum and Memorial website, dogs played an important military role for most European armies during World War I, serving in a variety of tasks. Dogs hauled machine guns and supply carts. They also served as messengers, often delivering their missives under a hail of fire. Though it is difficult to fully account for their number, according to one French source, more than 2,000 dogs were in service in the Western Front at one time during World War I, 
and the Imperial War Museum believes over 16 million total animals were in service during the course of the war. So just quick facts about them. I don't know. I didn't want to leave them out, which is probably silly, but we're moving on to World War II. During this war, American began professionally training dogs specifically to help with the war effort. A number of dog breeds were trained, but not all were found to be ideal for warfare. By 1945, the list of dog breeds accepted by the U.S. military was down to seven. These include the Doberman Pinscher, Malamute, Siberian Husky, Collie, Belgian Sheepdog, German Shepherd, and Eskimo Dog. The first hero dog up is Chips. He's a little bit more popular. There was a Disney TV movie made about him in 1990. But in real life, he was a German Shepherd Collie Malamute mix. He was donated by the Wren family, and Chips was very close to their children before his career in the military. He was said to intervene when his girls played with other children if he thought that they might be in danger. He was especially attached to one of the younger girls, Gail, and could often be seen following her to school. Now, the Wren family donated him to the war effort, which was not uncommon at the time. Many civilian families did this. And Chips was sent to the War Dog Training Center, Front Royal, Virginia, in 1942. He was one of four dogs assigned to the 3rd Infantry Division in Germany, Sicily, Italy, Africa, and France. And he was on duty as a sentry dog for the Roosevelt-Churchill Conference of 1943. One of Chip's heroic acts occurred in the summer of 1941 in Italy when he and his handler came upon a gun nest. They were trapped under heavy machine fire when Chip took off towards the shelter where the machine guns were. He got inside and eyewitnesses said that the shooting stopped. There was a lot of shouting and barking, and then a man ran out of the hideout with Chip. It looks like he was trying to chew up his neck from (laughs) what it says here. So in this incident, Chip helped take 10 German prisoners captive, and in the process, he sustained powder wounds and a cut on his head. However, he saved his handler and the men traveling with him. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, Silver Cross, and Purple Heart. However, they were later revoked because Army policy prevents accommodations to animals. So unofficially, his unit awarded him with a theater ribbon with an arrowhead for an assault landing and battle stars for each of his eight campaigns. At the end of his service, Chips was discharged and returned to the Wren family. Another hero dog from World War II (laughs) reminds me of that saying, she is tiny, but she is mighty. So this little pooch's name was Smokey, and she is a Yorkshire Terrier found in a foxhole in the New Guinea jungle. Fully grown, she weighed four pounds. Now she traveled by backpack with Colonel William A. Wen, the gentleman who found her, for two whole years. During this time, she was part of air and sea raids as well as photo reconnaissance missions. She survived 150 air raids and endured a typhoon. 
One of her greatest accomplishments was when she helped to run telegraph wire through a 70-foot, 8-inch diameter pipe. The pipe itself was partly filled with dirt, and it would have taken three days for engineers to dig through this area while being heavily bombed. But because Smokey took the wire through the pipe, they didn't have to. She was also the first therapy dog on record. She worked at a hospital for over a decade as a therapy dog and then retired in Cleveland, Ohio with Corporal Wen. And finally, our last four-footed hero, and this is a sad one, I'll warn you, this is about Gander, a 130-pound Newfoundland. He was donated to the Royal Rifles of Canada, and shortly thereafter, he became his battalion's mascot. <laughs> he and his battalion were sent to Hong Kong in 1941. Now, he was a giant of a dog, and despite intense heat during the Battle of Hong Kong, he actually fought off attacks on three separate occasions. The Japanese dubbed him the Black Beast. He was so black that he was practically invisible in the dark. Now, sadly, Gander died during the Battle of Lyman. His battalion had been fighting off Japanese attacks all through the night, and when a grenade landed near a wounded soldier, Gander picked it up with his mouth and took off running, saving the lives of seven soldiers. After the Battle of Lyman, survivors insisted that Gander's name be included on the Hong Kong Veterans Memorial Wall in Ottawa, Ontario, Canada. In 2000, he was posthumously awarded the Dickin Medal, an award for animals who show gallantry and devotion to duty while serving or associated with any branch of the armed forces or civil defense units. There are three hero dogs from World War II. And according to armyhistory.org, by June of 1944, the War Department had authorized the creation of 15 quartermaster war dog platoons. These units had their own table of organization and equipment that included 18 scout dogs, 16 messenger dogs, 20 enlisted men, and one officer. All 15 platoons were shipped overseas by the end of the year, and seven were shipped to Europe and eight to the Pacific. Time for our bookworm review. Constable Jack Forge intends to make the world safer, or at least the streets of Victorian London. But that's Kit Turner's domain, a swindler who runs a crew that acquires money the old-fashioned way conning the rich to give to the poor. When a local cab driver goes missing, Jackson is tasked with finding the man. And the only way to do that is by enlisting Kit's help. If Jackson doesn't find the cabbie, he'll be fired. If Kit doesn't help Jackson, he'll arrest her for thievery. Yet neither of them realize those are the least of their problems. Hello, dearies. This is Angela Bell, bringing you today's Bookworm Review. You can connect with me on my website, authorangelabell.com. The Thief of Blackfriars Lane by Michelle Greep is a rollicking adventure from beginning to end. With edge-of-your-seat action and Dickensian flair, Greep has created a fun story that will transport readers to the Victorian era. On the streets of London, Greep introduces us to dynamic duo Kit Turner and Jackson Forge 
Upon making their acquaintance, I quickly realized I'd follow this savvy heroine and earnest hero just about anywhere. And follow them I did. Through darkened alleys, underground railways, and slimy sewers, oh my! When I wasn't reaching for my smelling salts, I was laughing at Kitten Jackson's witty banter and thoroughly enjoying the colorful cast of quirky side characters. If you fancy a fast-paced historical romance brimming with humor and mystery, The Thief of Blackfriars Lane is sure to be your cup of tea. You've been listening to the Historical Bookworm Show, where history meets fiction. For more information, find us at historicalbookworm.com.